Hello and welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show, coming to you today from Rome, where the Amazon Synod is going on and we are very pleased to have with us Father Tony Polari, who's going to speak to us about celibacy while the Amazon Synod is underway. Stay tuned. Welcome, Father. Thank you, John Henry. It's great to be here. It's been a fantastic week in Rome and delighted to be able to speak with you. Praise God. Let's tell everybody a little bit about yourself. So, you are a priest. Uh, you offer the traditional rite. You live in England. Yes, I'm in the, the land of saints and martyrs mm -hmm. in uh, southwest England in Cornwall, living where St. Cuthbert Main himself uh, offered the Holy Mass before being hung, drawn, and quartered. Uh, I'm a canon lawyer, um, chaplain of the Extraordinary Form, and um, love being a priest in God's church. Beautiful, beautiful. So let's, if we can talk first a little bit about your own priestly life, how you got to the priesthood and why you chose it. I think that would be fascinating to start with. Sure. So I, when I was 17 years old, I began to feel a tug on my heart towards the priesthood, but I was afraid to tell anyone. So I went into a, an old good holy priest and knocked on his door, said, Father, can I talk with you? I think maybe God's calling to be a priest for these different reasons, but there's one problem. I really, really like girls. And he broke out laughing. He said, that's great. There would be a real problem if you don't like girls. <laughs> this is excellent. And, um, and then in the, in the following years, it really was true devotion to Mary through St. Louis de Mumford. A friend gave me that book. Uh, at the time, I was dating a wonderful, great Catholic girl, a uh, fantastic uh, young woman. A uh, very devout woman, but as I made the consecration to Our Lady, began feeling more and more a tug on my soul to uh, be totally be free to just give myself completely to the Lord, and it's been the greatest gift I've ever received in my life—the most uh, wonderful, joyful gift I could imagine. Amazing, amazing. Now the synod is going on, and there have been a lot of proposals, both before the synod and from even the Holy Father himself, to do away with celibacy. To have celibacy as an option, yes, and maybe an ideal or something, but not a requirement for the priesthood, not a requirement for holy orders. I want to go into this about the priesthood, first of all, but then also to address all holy orders, bishop, obviously, priest, but also deacon. Hmm. It, it's a very serious question, John Henry. To be honest, we're, the church is um, facing a very serious risk of ex very serious damage being done to the church. I want to quote for you the words of Cardinal Afon Stickler from a few years ago. He wrote, It's only through faith that is constantly and consciously sustained that the supernatural reasons underlying the commitment to celibacy can be truly understood. When this faith grows weak, the determination to persevere in celibacy fades. When faith dies, so does continence. And he goes on to talk about historically the, the tremendous damage to the faith that's taken place when celibacy was done away with. He says, a constant proof of this truth is to be found in the various heretical and schismatic movements that have arisen in the church. One of the first institutions to be attacked is clerical continence. Therefore, we should not be surprised that one of the first things that was rejected by heretical movements that broke away from the unity of the Catholic Church in the 16th century, Lutherans, Calvinists, Zwinglians, Anglicans, was in fact clerical celibacy. 
essentially the faith rises or falls with celibacy. There's a very intimate link and uh, we would be putting ourselves in an extremely dangerous position of damage to the faith if there was a decision made to essentially do, with, uh, do away with the obligation of clerical celibacy. And not only that, not only is it uh, historically proven there's a, there's a very serious connection between faith and continence, but this comes to us from the apostles themselves. This is something that was handed down from us to us uh, from the Apostles. There are great scholarly works. I highly recommend one by Father Christian Cochini from a few decades ago, but that's the authoritative uh, statement. He's a Jesuit priest, very good scholar. But there's a number of books out there which show that this comes from the Apostles themselves. In the first centuries of the Church under persecution, we don't have very many written documents, but you do find indications here and there from the Fathers of the Church, and Cochini goes through every single one of them from the first seven centuries of the Church. When in the fourth century the Church is able to come out of persecution and hiding and have councils and, and documents begin to emerge, she was above all preoccupied with the great Arian heresy, um, major dogmas in that area, but you do find also statements simply reaffirming what was the practice that had been handed on from the Apostles. To, to give you an example, this is from the Council of Carthage, which took place in 390, which declared in its uh, official documents, those who are in the service of the divine sacraments, that is, both deacons, priests, and bishops, those who are in the service of the divine sacraments, observe perfect continence, so that they may obtain in all simplicity what they are asking from God, what the Apostles taught and what antiquity itself observed, let us also endeavor to keep." And those statements you find universal testimony to, essentially. If you look at the different councils, they're all saying, not this is a new practice, we're coming up with, this is something new, we have to make the sacrifice. No, they're saying this is the practice that's been handed on to us from the Apostles in antiquity. And this is not something that could have remained hidden in the early centuries of the Church. We know that St. Peter himself was married. We hear of his mother-in-law. Uh, we know that there, some of the early bishops and priests, a fair number of them, were married. But from the moment that they were ordained, they observed perfect, con perpetual continence. Mm -hmm. that, is, they, that means concretely they could never more get married uh, and they could never more make use of their marital rights. They could no longer father children. And that was the standard practice, which would have been very noticeable. You would have known in the community very obviously, and certainly anyone being ordained, that's the reason why the practice uh, still throughout the centuries of the Church was you had to ask, obtain in a, in a serious way the wife's permission if a married man was being ordained, because she was also going to accept voluntarily this practice. And you, that's why you have in the scriptures uh, the, the passage where St. Peter says to the Lord, what about us? We've left all we had to follow you. The Lord replied, I tell you solemnly, there is no one who has left house, wife, brothers, parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not be given repayment many times over in this present time and in the world to come eternal life. And many people are unaware, so he's speaking there of leaving wife and children, and many of the, there were of course many men who had never married who were ordained, but men who were married who were ordained, some of them would literally leave to become missionaries or live apart from their wives. Others would live as brother and sisters uh, under the same roof in the early church. With time, the church fostered more and more uh, 
perpetual celibacy throughout their life, where men would would enter and, and never marry. But still, you find up through the Middle Ages, uh, married men being ordained, but observing very clearly perpetual continence. And this was taken so seriously that if a man fathered children after being ordained, uh, he was normally immediately excluded from the practice of, of his priesthood or, or diaconate or bishop because there's only one sacrament in three degrees. Right. Uh, we, we only have seven sacraments and one of them is the sacrament of holy orders which applies to deacons, priests, and bishops in different degrees but it's one sacrament. So this was the principle. It really, uh, you have statements in the early church this was considered equivalent to uh, really to a sin of adultery if you if you father children after wow. ordination at the time now let's unpack there's so much there first of all we have our Lord so all of um, the priest is in persona Christi and in Christ came never got married was celibate his whole life so that's the ideal we're aiming for you mentioned though that even with the f- choice of the first Pope Peter one of the very first apostles um, he was already a married man, but lived in con- con- perfect continence thereafter, therefore had no more sexual relations with his own wife. So, a huge sacrifice, and, and you alluded to his, his saying to our Lord, yeah, but what about us who've given up wife and children and so on, uh, which is just amazing. Um, but that actually opens up the possibility. You were talking about how in the early and even to the middle centuries, the priesthood was actually sort of for married when in a way too as long as their wives agreed and therefore they could practice this perfect continence therefore give up sexual relations that's fascinating because i think that might be a sort of way forward an orthodox way forward so we're not getting into some kind of different church or as you said leaving uh, celibacy leads to a leaving of the faith and it's a danger for the faith there's a possibility here of a sort of new opening in the priesthood, if you will, to married men with the understanding that they would be, with the permission of their wives, living in continence from then on. Yes, that practice would be in harmony with with the tradition of the church and very much in harmony with the key principle as to why perpetual uh, perfect continence was, was considered absolutely necessary. The reason in the early documents was the link between the celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass uh, any involvement in that as a deacon, as a priest, or as a bishop, and perfect continence. They, they, uh, St. Paul, well, let me cite for you St. Paul's own words. He, he tells us, The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Or sorry, he spe- sorry, he speaks about married couples practicing continence in another passage saying, uh, don't be apart except for a season to devote yourselves to prayer. So St. Paul makes the link that was universally recognized in the early church that there is something extremely helpful for your prayer in observing continence. And that's why it was seen as essential if you're going to be uh, actively playing a very active role uh, in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, in the most important prayer we have on the earth, you needed to observe this uh, total consecration to God in this way so that your, your body and even more your soul could be more fully dedicated to the prayer that you're, you're being offered. And yes, it is a possibility. Certainly there are uh, very significant advantages and the Church should always foster um, 
young men entering and uh, giving their lives entirely to the Lord in perfect continence. But it is a possibility that could be done uh, today of ordaining married men who are willing, and I think there would be married men who'd be willing to take this step of observing henceforth uh, perpetual continence. I, I mean, I think this is an amazing thing because they're they're look they're pointing to the Amazon, as I've said before on, on previous shows. It's an abuse of the people in the Amazon. You know, they're taking this small population there of the indigenous in the Amazon, saying they have no priests and nobody, and they need to come, and the church needs to therefore change the church and give married, not only married clergy, but also uh, uh, women, female priests, or, or at least deacons to start, and so on. But that's an abuse. They don't have the, the, what they really need is true Catholicism there because they've actually lost a lot of it. There's boasting going on about never having baptized any. And it's, it's like a zoo. Mm-hmm. But we are, we are actually, with this neat possibility that you mentioned, able to actually do something else. Now, we have this sort of already. John Paul II opened up the possibility of uh, married men entering holy orders in the form of the what he called the permanent diaconate. But in there, it seemed like there wasn't a requirement for celibacy, or, or, or you could still father children. How, how did that work? That, uh, that's a point which is hotly debated still today. Uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with the canonist Edward Peters, who's often written on that in North America. It's something completely uh, unique in the history of the Church, and I would argue a real mistake in the discipline of the Church that's taken place the last few decades, because never before uh, in, in the Western tradition did you have the standard policy of ordaining married men and allowing them to make use of their marital rights afterwards. It was, it was so essential to, from that point on, observe perfect continence. So when the, the new code, which you're referring to, came out in 1983, um, and uh, there's been arguments. In fact, most of the men who've been ordained as deacon were, were told, were not told, you need to be observe perfect, perfect contents. They were told by their superiors, by the, the bishops and uh, voices that this, you can continue to, to live um, in an ordinary way with your wife. But in fact, when the code was being prepared, the first code of canon law after 1917, so the major code prepared for years in 1983 was published. In 1977 and in 1980 and 1982, the major drafts of that code all had in it language which explicitly said that married deacons can continue to father children. But John Paul II made the deliberate choice to remove that language. He did not allow that to enter into the code Mm. in 1983. Now, why would he have done that Mm. if this was what was supposed to be done? And, uh, and not only that, but the language in the code, I'll read for you, in Canon 277 reads, clerics, so that refers to any deacon, priest, or bishop, clerics are obliged to observe perfect and perpetual continence. Mm-hmm. It's very explicitly stated. And so there, there are voices, very high voices in the church. Uh, Cardinal Coco Palmerio, for example, whose, whose role uh, up until about a year ago was to uh, interpret in an authoritative way legislative text. He wrote a letter to the U.S. bishops, which was not clear, it doesn't seem this was not a binding interpretation from, from what we can tell canonically, but he wrote a letter saying that no, the right way of understanding is men should be able to make use of their married rights, but there has never been an, an official authoritative interpretation of the church. And when you look at the entire history of how intimately this was related, and to speak frankly of the historical disasters that have taken place when you remove this practice, 
uh, it speaks very strongly in favor of, of maintaining it. Absolutely. Now, so there's a push in the church not only to do it this way, but the other way as well. And what I mean by that is this. Back when Cardinal Bergoglio was in Buenos Aires, he was actually friends with a woman whose husband was a bishop. He left the bishopric and lived at home with, he got married, so-called, and then uh, lived at home with his wife, would apparently can celebrate masses with his wife or whatever. She became the head of the movement of married priests and their wives. And when he passed away, um, Cardinal Bergoglio was very close friends with her. And he would call her up, I believe it was every Sunday, so much so that when he got elected Pope, the media went to her to ask her what she thought. And one of the first things she said was she thought the Pope would open the way for married clergy and their wives. And so that's, that was very disturbing seeing that years ago, but it's coming sort of to fruition now, or kind of prophecy, if you will. Um, so this is very concerning indeed. And there is, and there's been a lot of talk about this new change that's going to come now, being able to bring back in a lot of the priests who just left the priesthood decided to get married themselves. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's a very serious, um, very serious issue that you raised there. And, and so I should, the question of priests, because many you may have heard yourself, John Henry, someone say, but what, wasn't it the early practice in the East that men were allowed to be married and something the church had approved from way back? Well, not if you study it uh, closely, no. In the, in the East, universally in the church, this was the early practice from the apostles. Uh, there are always men who sinned and, and abuses, but this was, the, this was always what was seen as essential. Well, in the, um, in the 690, there was the Council of Trullo uh, under the Emperor Justini Justinian II, very close to Constantinople, this council took place in the East, a local council. And those bishops gathered, made decrees, which the Pope at the time immediately rejected, and successive popes rejected, uh, the canons which offered, uh, really what was a huge mistake, a change in the practice of clerical continence, not because of a shortage of priests. Bishop Athanasius Schneider points this out in a, a recent article in Faithful Insight from September, where he speaks, let me just quote Bishop Schneider's words. He says, priestly marriage... Uh, this practice was legalized in the Eastern Church in the 7th century, not because of a lack of priests. At the time, there was an overabundance of priests, especially in Constantinople. It was rather done out of a leniency toward human weakness, because those who in the Episcopal and priestly office had deviated and departed from the apostolic rule of life. It was at the time a deviancy and disloyalty toward the demanding imitation of Christ, which the apostles lived out in their complete sexual continence, from the moment of their being called unto death. And it's very interesting if you look at how even them, when they were breaking with this tradition, how they uh, tried to apply it. They said, yes, absolutely. Any priest, there's this link between celebrating the sacred mysteries of the altar and continence. So what we'll do, since at that time priests were often only celebrating once a week, is they said, you can make use of your marital rights with your wife other times, but before you celebrate the the sacraments, you have to be abstinent for, for some period of time before. Mm -hmm. So even there, when they were breaking with the tradition, they still sensed this important link that was there. But that was rejected by the Church. Um, and then centuries later, after the, the very sad break uh, with the East, mm -hmm. 
when the church was negotiating and trying to find a way to, for some of them wanting reconciliation and union, the church made a decision in some centuries to, to permit in exceptional circumstances men to keep using of the, the married rights. Point of decision, you could argue, was that really a wise decision or not? Because, and I really would like our, our readers to understand, our listeners to understand the, the enormous difference that comes about from, from celibacy, from perpetual continence. St. Paul speaks very strongly to this point about uh, the unmarried man being free to be given to the Lord. And if you consider from what, I know you yourself, John Henry, are married. If you went home after this time in Rome and said to your wife, Honey, I have great news. Uh, I don't want to concern you, but a month from now, I'm going to also get married to Susie. I'll be married to her as well, and don't worry, it's not going to change in the slightest. My wholehearted devotion to you, you're going to have 100% of my heart and attention and affection. It won't change a thing. I think she would probably say, you are crazy. Probably worse than that. <laughs> probably worse than that. Okay, well, good for your wife. Probably worse. But, but she would say, you're crazy. A man can only give his heart to one spouse on this earth, and even has a hard time doing that perhaps, but only to one spouse can he give himself wholly. And so if that's true for, for any spouse, well, that, that's just the nature of a man's heart. And so when a man makes the sacrifice to say, I'm giving up any earthly spouse to give all that I could have given just to the Lord, we know in an earthly marriage, a spouses have a major impact on each other and influence in all kinds of ways who you become and who you are. Well, take that with the Lord who promised us a hundredfold for whatever you've sacrificed for him. So when it's well-lived, celibacy produces a hundredfold effect for good in the priest's life. And the reason perhaps many of our viewers, uh, depending on where they are, may not have good examples of that. They may have great example, examples of that. There's wonderful holy priests on the earth who I really admire. But uh, there have been many sad cases. Many priests, the formation has been very poor the last few decades, to speak frankly. Priests used to have a tremendous formation and training uh, to be soldiers for the spiritual battle. They, the, the training in this wholeheartedly gift of themselves to the Lord included obviously the holy sacrifice of the Mass offered every day, the divine office prayed reverently, the daily rosary, uh, practices of fasting and penance that were just common for every priest, the annual silent retreat, well-lived intense retreat of five days a year, uh, daily time of meditation or holy hour, spiritual reading, that all these things, dressing as a priest, uh, helping you in your consecration, all these helps many priests were never offered or not offered fully in the formation for their priesthood. And so that's one reason um, they themselves have been robbed in many cases of, of many of the graces that would be offered. So. Uh, I mentioned I may have gotten off on track for the question you wanted me to answer, but I, I think I, I think that's amazing because I think that is an opportunity for those who are practicing, perhaps unknowingly, uh, uh, in a way they really shouldn't be according to the will of God. Uh, you know, if you're already ordained a, a, a deacon or or whatnot, and you're able to embrace celibacy with the permission of your wife. It would be awesome to do. And I think those helps that you just mentioned, that you just, I was going to ask you that, like, how do you get there? Because you mentioned you like girls and, and you, you liked girls and the, the bishop was like, yeah, you're supposed to. Um, and, but those, if you, you don't mind running through them again, that's so important. I think it's so key. And I think perhaps this could be an opening for deacons who want to fully give themselves to the ministry uh, to be able to do that, yes, with the permission of their wives, because it should have been done beforehand, but wasn't. Um, I think that would be incredible. But it's also for those married men who might think of uh, giving themselves to the priesthood with the permission of their wives. One of the big questions would be, uh, how, how do I do that?
Sure. And, and I should preface this by saying I have tremendous esteem and respect for, for the priests who've come into the church recently who are married. They're often very brave, courageous men who uh, left very difficult position, faced rejection by their family and friends to, to become Catholics, and who often are very firmly convinced of the teaching of the Church on, on the doctrine of the faith and, and uh, preach it courageously in many cases. Um, and I should also say from a canonical perspective that they, because they were, they and their wives were, were, not, uh, were not asked to make this commitment when they were ordained, uh, as, as Edward Peters argued as a canonist, they're in a situation where it doesn't seem we could oblige them to take this step. But if what you're speaking of, if they were to freely do this, which couples throughout history for different reasons have decided to do, yes, the, the tremendous helps of the church. So to run through those again, for, and this used to be standard for any, any priest, whatever, however busy you were, these were just part of being a priest you did every day. Specifically sort of geared to assisting to maintain celibacy. Yeah, well, they were geared towards strengthening your soul with the grace of Christ to be an alter Christus. The priest is called to, in the midst of his, his human frailty and personality, through the grace of Christ, to let anyone who encounters him encounter the very person of Jesus Christ, especially in the sacraments, but anytime. I mean, you'd be, I'll be walking down the street, someone may get off the bus and say, Father, can you hear my confession? Or can you come to our house? And what they're looking for is to encounter the person of Jesus Christ in his teachings, in his charity, in his self-sacrifice. Uh, which I do poorly, but that's what they're looking to encounter, and there's a, a very particular grace available. And so for that, all these different helps are meant to increase the grace of Christ in your soul, so you could live that out heroically, one aspect of which was, was uh, perpetual continence. Hmm. So those basic helps were essentially a very strong prayer life and regular practices of sacrifice. Hmm. And the, the fundamental ones would be offering the holy sacrifice in a reverent way, uh, especially the, the Traditional liturgy does such a beautiful job for the priest himself of strengthening your, your prayer life, uh, taking time of thanksgiving after the Mass to pray and meditate. The divine office, which up until a few decades ago was, was longer than what it is for most priests now, and some priests still choose to pray it, had eight offices during the day and very beautiful, helpful prayers. The uh, daily rosary was a given. Going to confession at least once every two weeks was just standard. Uh, many priests chose to go once a week. Uh, I myself get together with a great uh, brother priest and we hear each other's confessions every week and it's, it's uh, a great help for your priesthood. The, uh, either a daily, time, a daily time of meditation, whether in the form of a holy hour, spiritual reading, there were different ways of doing that. Um, annual retreat, of, uh, a serious retreat of five days with surrounded by silence. Uh, daily regular practices at least once a week of, of uh, sacrifices, fasting, or other, other penances that were available to any priest in a good balanced way that were very helpful. Um, dressing as a priest as a help, first of all, for yourself, a constant reminder of your vocation as, as uh, being consecrated to God. These and, and other helps were available and, and they make such an enormous difference. When I'm speaking to young men about a vocation to the priesthood, say men who are in their 20s or teenagers, they say, look, both of us, if you're not married right now, both of us at this state in our life, we're both supposed to live um, in continence. You and I are supposed to live it. Who has the easier job? You, who's a teenager in the midst of all the stuff you encounter every day or as a, as a young adult in your university environment or workplace and all you're dealing with and with the limited time you maybe have with your job for prayer, or myself, who has all of this time of prayer during the day, I'm living in a consecrated environment of a rectory, I have a supported brother priest, I have a hundred times more helps because young men are often afraid, well, it's not easy to, to be celibate in their situation in today's world, which no, it's not easy. 
Um, and it's always a sacrifice and challenge, but it is, uh, I would say, much, much easier. We have tremendous, enormous helps for this as a priest. And so I would say to any young man who might be listening to this, do not be afraid of taking that leap. You have incredible helps that the Church will offer you if you choose to put them into practice and if you choose a, a good place for formation as you're being formed as a priest. Um, I, I'm, I'm so encouraged that there's actually a way forward, a sort of change, not really a change, but harking back to the beginning of the Church in a legitimate way which allows married men, if needed, the opportunity with the permission of their wives to practice continence and therefore, if they're so chosen, to enter the priesthood. That, that's great. And it's, it's, a, it's a way forward. To, I, I, the, a lot of people like to talk about compromise. Usually in, in the church, you can't compromise with sin. But this is not sin. And this is a way, if you want something new, sort of, so to speak. Um, and God knows, maybe there will be people in the Amazon or wherever who are married, who will, men who will give themselves up for this. God willing, let's find out. But uh, it's great talking to you, Father, about this. Thank you for being with us on the John Henry Weston Show. Being with you, John Henry. Thank you for all the great work that Life Size News is doing. Praise God. God bless you all, and we'll see you next time.